You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. with us or haven't been with us in a few weeks. For the last four weeks, we have been working through Paul's letter to the Galatians, a letter that since it was first written has been challenging people's fundamental understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And what we've seen over the last four weeks is two very simple truths. First, Christianity is not about you. Christianity has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. Christianity has nothing to do with how morally pure you are, how, you know, good you are at following rules. Christianity has nothing to do with any of that. It's not about what you know. And here's why this is good news. Because all those feelings of guilt, all those feelings of inadequacy, all those feelings of shame that you heap on yourself that you're not good enough, that you need to do more, that blah, 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 It was never in there in the first place. Because Christianity is not about you. Christianity, as we've seen over the last four weeks, is all about Jesus. It is all about what Jesus has done for us. How, as our Savior, Jesus has taken care of everything so that we have direct access to God. So that you and I, not on the basis of anything we do, but all because of what He has done, you and I are right with God. And how, as our King, as our Lord, Jesus is the one that continues to define how we are to live. We're no longer just subject to the law to a certain set of rules or principles. We're free from that because that's not what Christianity is about. It is all about Jesus. Now, I know that sounds like an incredibly simple statement to say that Christianity is not about you. It's all about Jesus. And there are some of you that are fighting the urge every week. I just know it. I see it on your face to just shout out, duh, move on already. But what I hope you have seen in the last four weeks, as we have really dug into this question of what does it mean to be a Christian, even if you start with that very simple understanding, it's not about you and it's all about Jesus, as you start to unpack this, you begin to realize quite quickly there's a lot more to that statement. And if anything, if you really understand it, it's a little jarring a little uncomfortable because you realize much of what you were taught about Christianity, much of what you've told yourself about Christianity, much of what the world says Christianity is, you realize it was never there in the first place. And it kind of shakes you to your core and you're like, so what is it? And this is jarring. It's uncomfortable. I know it was for me the first time I started unpacking this stuff in seminary. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean I don't have to do anything? I was always taught I have to do things. Now you're, you're, you're rocking my world in the midst of all this. So I get it. I get it. It also leaves us with a bunch of questions. And so last week and for the next couple weeks, we're unpacking more of those questions that come out of this. Last week, if you remember, we unpacked the question, so how is it? 
that a guy who died on the cross 2,000 years ago affected my standing with God today? How did that happen? How does the death of Jesus affect me still today? More, think about it, the mechanics of salvation. This is one of those statements, right? Christians just say all the time, Jesus died for my sins. But have you ever stopped to actually question how that worked? How did him dying make me right with God? That was a big question. And so last week in unpacking that, the short and simple version of that sermon is that Jesus has removed this barrier that was the law in dying under the law. I know, that doesn't help. Let me go a little longer. What we saw as we look at scripture is you and I were designed from the beginning to simply take God at his word. You and I were designed to simply trust God. God speaks and we go, yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to do that. The problem is we don't know how to do that well. And so the reason the law was given was to help us understand how to obey God, how to be obedient, how to trust him. So when God says, trust me, let me be the only God of your life, just, you know, go with that, that should have been enough. But as we saw, Israel was crazy, and they still couldn't get it. And even these simple, basic laws that God gave them, like don't sleep with each other, stop killing people, stop stealing, they found workarounds. And so God gives them this 10 basic laws, and then he gives more laws to try and clarify the original 10. And then they break those new laws, and more laws are added, and more laws, and more laws. And by the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, there are over six hundred laws that are really just saying, trust me. 600 laws that can be summed up in one law. And the problem is, because we still continued to break the law, we were trapped in this cycle, in this curse, as the law put it. And we were cut off from God. We weren't able to simply trust God anymore because we had to obey this system, this barrier. Well, in coming... In the flesh, Jesus comes and he actually fulfills the law. Jesus stands, and we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to unpack it fully. He stands as the perfect sacrifice. He completely satisfies all the requirements and obligations of the law. And because it's satisfied, the law is fulfilled. Because the law is fulfilled, we no longer have to worry about that barrier. And we're able to just once again trust God, take God at his word and his word alone. That's what we are now entering into. If you're like, that made no sense, go back to last week because I I spent like 40 minutes doing it, okay? Because that, it's a really important topic. And so I hope you understand that. Now, next week we're gonna talk about, so what do we do with the law, right? I mean, this has been the big question since we started this series and I told you, you are no longer obligated to keep the 10 commandments. That riled people, What do you mean? I've always been taught this, blah, blah, blah. So what do we do with the law? How do we engage it? Next week, I promise you, we will unpack what we do with the law. But this week, I want to talk about the other great question that has come out from this study of Galatians. And that is, what is faith? How do we express faith? What does it mean to have faith? See, if you think about it, Paul uses this word, all the time. In fact, all throughout the Bible, we are told to have faith. What is it? 
And in fact, in Paul's letters specifically, he says everything hinges upon faith. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 16. I'm going to throw it on the screen. This was, if we looked at this a couple weeks ago, when Paul was confronting Peter. And Peter was trying to say that Christianity is all about what you do. He's arguing for kind of a workspace righteousness. And Paul goes, no. Peter, we know nothing we do is ever going to make us right with God. He specifically says this. Peter, we Jews know that a person is not justified by works of the law. A person is not made right with God by their efforts, but solely by their faith in Jesus. And so we too, it is for this reason that we have put our faith in Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. And again, not by works of the law. Because we know that works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, it's, it's, Paul is just beating this drum. It's not about what you do. It is all about what Jesus has done for you. All we do is have faith. Okay, but that doesn't tell us what faith is, right? I mean, if anything, if you look at this statement and you look at the other ways Paul uses the word faith in this letter... You could derive that faith is a response, right? I mean, even when he says here, we are not made right with God on the basis of works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus has already done something. We are responding with faith. But what type of response is that? Is faith intellectual? Meaning, is is faith simply about taking certain truths that we have garnished or garnered to understand as fact and then giving mental assent to them? Is that what faith is? Is this this intellectual checkbox of, yeah, I think this is true, yeah, I think that's true. Is that faith? Is faith emotional? Meaning, is faith about a feeling that we have? I mean, we talk about hope, right? Right? And if you think about this, there are things that we believe that aren't necessarily grounded in reality like an afterlife. In the sense of we can't see that, we can't touch that, we can't feel that in any way. And yet, deep down inside of us, we just, we feel that there's something more. Is that what faith is? Is it an emotion? Or is faith something you act upon? Is faith something that impacts you, that changes you, that that fixes the way you live your life, if you want to put it that way. What is faith? See, if we're going to answer the definition of faith, if we're going to understand it, we need to understand what kind of response it is. But the other thing we need to do today, if we're going to truly understand what faith is, is we need to contrast the way Paul talks about faith with the way James talks about faith. And the reason we need to do that is because it seems, it seems on a surface level, that James and Paul have a very different definition of faith. It seems like they are contradicting each other. And for years, Christians have struggled to understand how to reconcile the two. But as we're going to see, they don't contradict each other at all. If anything, they further enhance our understanding of what faith is. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to help us understand what kind of response faith is, and then I want to help us understand how Paul and James relate to each other. Finally, after we've done those two things, we're going to step back and we're just going to simply go, okay, so what is faith? How do we understand it? How do we, comp- or how do we comprehend this? How does this impact us in any way, shape, or form? What is faith? That's what we're after. Does that make sense? Okay. 
As for what is faith, um, the easiest way to do this is to start with a definition. The problem is, in English, we don't really have an exact translation for the word Paul uses for faith. In fact, in English, we have three words for the one word Paul uses. In English, to describe the faith that Paul's talking about, we actually use the words faith, belief, and trust. And if you think about it, these words are clearly connected to each other, right? And we often use them in conversation interchangeably. We talk about what we believe, what we trust, what we have faith in. We, we can use them. But why this matters is if you actually look at the nuanced meaning of each of those words, faith, belief, and trust mean something slightly different from each other. For instance, beliefs in our language, beliefs are mostly intellectual. They're more of a, an idea that we have, something we have learned to comprehend. So if I say, I believe something, it's another way for me to say, I think it's true. Another example of this, I could tell you today, I believe I'm having steak tonight. And you would be right to ask me, why do you believe you're having steak tonight? And I would say, well, I went to the butcher shop yesterday. I bought a pack of ribeyes. And before I left, I seasoned those bad boys. And I have all intention of going home and throwing them on a grill. In other words, why do I believe it? Well, there's some evidence that I can cite. It's also rational for me to, to think the evidence points to this direction. And so I have this intellectual belief, this intellectual idea that I have absorbed. That's belief. Now, on the other hand, you have the idea of faith. And faith is more ethereal. Faith is more abstract, more emotional, less rational. For instance, you can say, I have faith that we are going to find our lost puppy. You may have no evidence that you are going to find your lost puppy, but that's not going to stop you from just feeling like you are going to find that puppy. In fact, you may have all the evidence in the world contrary to that point. You may say, I still have faith we're going to find the puppy, even though somebody has shown you the bloody collar of your puppy. <laughs> I wondered if I was going to get a reaction. That was good. <laughs> the point is, the point is you may have all the evidence in the world saying the opposite, but it's not going to affect this feeling that you have. You still feel, you still have faith that you're going to do this. Faith is a feeling. And then there's trust. And all of us know what it means to trust someone just as much as we know what it is to not trust someone. For instance, if I believe you are a terrible driver, if I know you have a terrible track record that every time you get behind the wheel, somebody gets hurt, I am not going to trust you with my car. I doubt I'm going to trust getting in the car with you. I am not going to trust you to drive me in any way, shape, or form. My actions are going to be very clear. I am going to run away from you. Okay? Another example, though. If I believe that you are creative, if I believe that you have good fashion sense or you have a good sense of art or colors or whatever it is, then I would probably let you pick out the paint color to my house. I would probably trust you to critique my wardrobe, okay? That's trust. Trust requires action in some way, shape, or form. So beliefs are more intellectual. They're, they're founded on evidence. They're rational. Faith is more emotional. It doesn't necessarily have to correspond to reality. It can, it can just 
be a feeling, a hopeful desire, a wish that you have. And then trust is action-oriented. And so why this matters is that in English, it is possible for me to say, I believe in something, but I don't trust it. For instance, it's possible for me to say, I believe Supreme Scream is a safe ride at Knott's Berry Farm. Supreme Scream is that really tall one. It goes up like 20 stories and you just go up and then down and up and down and up and down. I believe it's safe. I also believe that there are nut jobs out there who think it's fun. I don't, but here's the thing. While I believe it's safe, while I believe there are safety protocols in place to make sure, you know, even if every mechanism fails, there's an emergency brake system, I believe it's there. I also believe somebody is doing routine maintenance on it. I also believe that nobody has ever died on it before. That does not mean I'm willing to trust that machine with my life. Because I just feel that the moment I put my butt in that chair and it goes up, it is immediately going to come crashing down to the earth. Or the other thought that I have is the seat's going to come loose and then I'm going to fall down. Therefore, I don't trust Supreme Scream. I don't trust the 16-year-old operating that ride telling me it's safe. Okay? In English, I can say, I intellectually believe something to be true, but I don't trust it. But in Greek, you can't say that. See, I told you, there's three words in English, but in Greek, there's only one word. The word pisteo. The noun form is pistis. It's just fun to say. Pistis. Pisteo and pistis. And what they connotate is this idea that to believe in something, to have faith in something, to trust something, to have pisteo involves our intellect, involves our emotions, and it affects our actions, it impacts us in some way, shape, or form. And so to say that we have faith means there is something we have learned and it's impacting us and then it's changing the way I live my life. Paul, at the end of chapter two of Galatians, puts it this way. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think about that statement. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Paul, in that statement, is talking about an intellectual understanding of what God has done for him. The Son of God died for him. The Son of God gave his life For Paul. And Paul, intellectually understanding this, is now affected by this in his life, by his actions, by the way he lives, by the things that determine how he makes decisions. As we've talked about this, this is where if you say, I trust in Jesus as my Lord, then that means Jesus gets to dictate terms. Jesus gets to say how we love, how we live, how we care for other people. And if you're saying, I've received the love of God, as Paul has, then it should be evidenced in your life. This is the definition of faith. Even Paul is using in this context. Faith as a response to God. Faith as a response to God is intellectual, it's emotional, and it's active. This is what he's getting at. We know that a person is not made right with God by works of the law, but by their response of faith to Jesus. 
by this understanding of Jesus and how that has impacted you. I want to be clear on this because this is where it gets really interesting. Paul is adamant, adamant in this, that what makes us right with God is what Jesus has already done. We, by faith, are simply responding to Jesus, okay? And why this matters is because James, in his book, seems to say the opposite. James seems to say that our works necessitate faith. Our works bring about faith. But as we're going to see, James never actually says that. He doesn't say that at all. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at James's letter. And so if you want to, I invite you to open up to James chapter 2, but we'll throw it on the screen. Here's what's going to happen as you're going to see it. James and Paul are not contradicting each other in any way, shape, or form. Rather, James and Paul are talking about the exact same definition of faith I just gave you. That faith is intellectual, emotional, and actionable. It's just James and Paul are talking about faith from different vantage points on a person's journey with God. Let me explain. But first, let's read. Let's read James so you can kind of get a sense of the argument here. James chapter 2. James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Can we throw the next verse up? Some of you will say, I have faith. Well, I have deeds. And I will say, show me your faith without deeds. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe. You believe that there's a God. Good for you. Congratulations. But here's the thing. Even the demons believe that, and it terrifies them. They shudder at the very fact of it. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Okay, can we just say real quick here, how cool is it that in the Bible you can get away with calling somebody foolish? Let's bring this back. I mean, we used to just say, like, people are jerks, but it's so much more fun to go, you fool! Back into what I'm doing. You foolish person! Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was then fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Now it's this last verse where all the controversy comes. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. See, it's this last verse because we have a mantra. Our theology dictates that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. We are saved by faith alone. And now James is saying you're not saved by faith alone, but you also have to do works 
And so a person that just cursorily reads the, I don't even know if that was a word, cursorily, whatever, just at a surface level reads this and just says, well, see, look at verse 24. You can't just have faith. You have to have deeds. James said so is missing the point. Consider the way that James has defined pisteo above. James, in talking about pisteo here, the word belief, the word faith, they're all the exact same thing in this context. The person that James is addressing at the very top of this passage has defined pisteo as solely an intellectual exercise. Verse 19 makes this very clear. You believe that there is one God. You have intellectually assented to the fact or the reality that a God exists. Good for you. Congratulations. That's a wonderful truth. It is true. I'm glad you know that. Fantastic. But the real question is, how is that affecting you? See, even the demons have intellectual understanding that a God exists, and it terrifies them. How does your belief in God affect you? Then he goes on in this passage to reference Abraham. And in fact, if you caught it, James uses the exact same quote of Abraham from Genesis that Paul does to make his case for what faith is. But here's the thing. Before he uses that quote, if you look at it, James first says, consider our brother Abraham who sacrificed his son Isaac and how that fulfilled his faith. And you go, what, what is going on? If you remember... In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac. It's a crazy story. It's nuts. And you go, what? And so Abraham, by faith, we're told, binds his son. And just as he's about to strike him with a knife, God says, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. I believe it. You got it. You proved yourself to me. Congratulations. And James goes, see, that proved you need works. Okay, but James isn't stupid because James then goes on to quote Abraham was right with God on the basis of belief. He's quoting Genesis 15. I know this sounds weird, but Genesis 15 happens before Genesis 22. In fact, in the timeline, it's about 30 or 40 years before Genesis 22 happens, meaning 30 or 40 years before Abraham tries to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham has already believed God and received the promise. We talked about this last week. God told Abraham, basic, Abraham, you're going to have a kid. And Abraham went, okay, I trust you. And that was it. And in fact, by Genesis 22, the kid has already come. The promise has already been received. It's already there. And he goes, so then why did Abraham have to continue to show his trust of God? Because God wanted to know, Abraham, do you still trust me? Are you still clinging to me? Or did you just get the goods and now you're going to go do your own thing? And so God says, I want to know, do you still trust me? I already believe you've got the promise. I gave you your son in the flesh. Do you still trust me? Is your faith still impacting you? And so he points to the story of Isaac and goes, see, James does, he points to the story of Isaac and goes, see, Abraham, for 30 or 40 years, continued to cling to God through faith. Now, if you consider James's letter, 
You see, James is talking to a group of people who fully understand that they are Christians, who have been Christians for a long time. And James is trying to talk to them and say, guys, are you sure you're a Christian? Because when I look at your life, I'm not seeing it being impacted in any way. I'm wondering, did you just get the get out of hell free card and now you're living however you want? Or are you truly clinging by faith to God? Because if you are clinging to God, it should impact the way you live. Whereas Paul is on the opposite end of the spectrum and Paul is talking to new believers. Paul in Galatians is trying to help people understand what it means to be a Christian. And if you remember in Galatians, people have come in and tried to convince these Galatian people that in order to truly be a Christian, it's all about what you do. And Paul goes, no, being a Christian is not about what you do. It is all about Jesus. And being a Christian is all about living in response to Jesus. James is saying the same thing. If you understand that you are a Christian, if you understand what God has done for you, if you understand that you are loved by God, how is that impacting your life? See, what James and Paul both make clear is this. Faith is intellectual. Absolutely. Faith is intellectual. It involves an ongoing, growing understanding of who God is and what God has done for us. Church, this is why every week we come to church and we read the Bible. This is why we have Bible studies. This is why certain people in their free time pick up books on Christianity. You ever wonder why they do that? Because they're like, I want to continue to grow in my understanding of who God is. That's why we learn. But faith is not merely intellectual. Faith should impact our lives. It should change us. It should affect us. If you really understand who your God is and what your God has done for you, how is that marking your life? Let me give you another analogy in the midst of this. I don't know if you ever thought this way when you were a kid, but I remember thinking this way. I always thought married people were like related in some way. And what I mean by that is, it seems like the longer a couple is married, the more they start to look like each other, the more they start to sound like each other, the more they share the same ideas as the other person. Like, there's beyond the completing another person's sentences idea, but it's something about the longer you are in a relationship with person, the longer you have grown in your understanding and your respect and your love for a person you just innately or naturally or passively start to look like that person. On my wedding day, I did not stand there and go, I promise to be more like you in 10 years. I didn't even think about it. It was beyond me. That was not what I was thinking about on my wedding day. But as I look back 10 years ago, or eight years ago, whatever it was, I realized <laughs> I've been with her forever. It just blurs. We're on like 13 years or something. But I realize I am a lot more like Melissa than I was 10 years ago. And the scary thing is she is a lot more like me than she, is, than she was 10 years ago. That wasn't an active decision I made. I was not actively pursuing like, to change my life. But the more I loved my wife, the more I learned about my wife, the more I learned to respect my wife, I just naturally started to absorb her traits her behaviors, her way of thinking, and vice versa. This is part of what God invites us into. 
this relationship of faith is God is saying, I have done everything for you. Come and respond to me. Receive me. And as you receive me, learn more about me. Grow in relationship with me. Learn what I have to offer you. Learn what I've done for you. And naturally, passively, you just are impacted by that. Now, if we stop pursuing God, if we say, I don't want to engage you anymore, I got what I want, whatever, then you have to question, like, have you really understood what God did for you? Another analogy. Jesus, because it's always good to quote Jesus in church. Jesus says that we are to have faith like a child. Faith like a child. It's a great analogy. And I don't know how you process that statement, what it means to have faith like a child, but I always, for whatever reason, used to always imagine like a six-year-old when Jesus said to have faith like a child. And so I I processed this idea of how does a six-year-old have faith? And if you think about it, six-year-olds have incredibly simplistic faith, right? You, You tell them something and they just go, okay, mommy, okay, daddy. Case in point, when a six-year-old falls down and gets a boo-boo, you want to know the best medicine, according to mom? A kiss. How on earth does a kiss make everything better? It logically makes no sense. There is no scientific proof for this in any way that a kiss makes all your boo-boos go away. But you tell that to a kid, they go, okay, mommy. And so they fall down, and the first thing they do, look to mommy, mommy, kiss. Maybe that's a younger than a six-year-old. They have a little more developed vocabulary. <laughs> but a kiss resolves all conflict in the world. I always thought that's what it was. But as a dad, I started reflecting on that just in terms of my relationship with my daughter. Now, my daughter is only nine months old. And so I've got a long way to go on this dad journey, I know. But I reflected on how, how does my daughter express trust to me now? as a nine-month-old, because I realized that she is trusting me, right? She has faith in me. She doesn't know anything about the world. She doesn't really know anything about me, but she trusts me. And I see her trust in me because when things get, like, scary for her, when she falls or when she's sad or she's in an uncomfortable situation, she clings to me or to my wife. She just, like, she can't get high enough on us sometimes, But it's not just in the bad things, in the good things. My daughter doesn't know how to process joy, so she flaps her arms and gets excited and then runs to us and just wraps us up. She just clings to us in her excitement. We are the means by which she processes her emotions. She goes to us for the ups and downs of life, for that stable, the stability, the comfort, the encouragement, the support. We're that system for her. And as she's getting older, as she's starting to take steps and crawl and make new faces and and just explore the world and different things, she's constantly looking back to us for approval. Am I doing this right? Is this good? Is this bad? Should I put this in my mouth? Um, Or typically it's us running over and grabbing things out of her mouth. Like, don't do that. But the point is, in the midst of this, is she looks to us for guidance because she recognizes she doesn't know what's right. She doesn't know what's wrong. She doesn't know what's good. She doesn't know what's going to hurt her. And so she needs to know as she takes these steps, am I doing it right? And she looks for our approval. In the same way, finally, as I was thinking about this, as I was holding my daughter, as she clings to me, she really doesn't know anything about me at this life stage. But that won't always be the case. As she gets older, our relationship will continue to deepen. And she's going to learn about me, the good, the bad, the ugly, But that's okay, because that's where the richness of this relationship comes. 
And so over time, she's going to see me as a full person, and I'm no longer just going to be this object that she used to cling to when she was scared, but I'm going to be this person that she looks to. And something changes. And I don't know if this works for you, this analogy. As I was just reflecting on Jesus' words and this idea of what is faith, I just thought those were beautiful analogies of this. Because God invites us into the exact same type of relationship with him. He says, cling to me in the midst of the ups and downs of life. Look to me for the support and stability you need. No human person, no mechanism on this earth will ever give you what you need. But God will. No person on this earth is enough for you. They will always let you down. I won't. Cling to me in the good and the bad. I will be the source of stability for you. At the same time, God says, I don't want just the bad stuff. I'd like to celebrate with you. I'd love to know when the good stuff happens. Bring it to me. We cling to our Father. And at the same time, God should be the source of our guidance. If we are honest with ourselves, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves and humble enough to admit we don't know everything, like a baby, that when we are left to our own devices, we hurt people, and therefore we need some guide, we look to our Father and we go, God, how am I supposed to love people? How am I supposed to view myself What am I supposed to do today? God is that source. And then finally, this idea of when you cling to God in a relationship, your understanding of that person should continue to grow. Right? The God you understand when you're three should not be the same type of God you understand when you're 83. That relationship should deepen. It should grow in the same way it does with anybody else. This is the faith our God invites us into. Church, faith is not just intellectual. Faith is emotional and it's active. And so if you're wondering, well, how do I grow in this faith? Well, start with the basics of what you know and just press into that. Cling to your father and go, how do I do this? Or start with, again, what you know of Jesus says I should go love my enemies. Well, go try that this week and just watch what happens. And if you're like, I don't know what that means, go to Costco. And when you get there, there's going to be the guy that left his cart in the middle of the road. And you're going to be, like, frustrated. Because I know, I'm always that guy that's frustrated. And if you're going, well, how do I express trust? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so instead of taking your cart and bashing the other guy's cart, (laughs) ask yourself the simple question, what does it look like to trust, what does it look like to love this person as I would want to be loved? Just start practicing that. Watch what happens when you take what you know and start putting it into effect. Just watch how your life starts to change. You're a lot more peaceful, a lot more loving, a lot more kind. These things are just going to naturally bubble out of you. This is Paul's point. This is James's point. Church, this is the faith we're invited to receive this morning. And so I just encourage you, have faith. Let me pray.